Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get to our next guest straight away, Danielle Martino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence. Danielle, yesterday as I was watching football and eating turkey, I was just kind of flipping through my Twitter feed. And I started seeing more and more mentions about this South African vi- variant here. And then you wake up this morning and boom, Europe trading off 3% equities. Uh, and here we've got the U.S. market. How are you trying to contextualize the news that we're, we're, we're getting today about this new variant as it relates to kind of just the overall economic outlook? You know, you know, I keep up this USA Today map of the United States, and two months ago, there were only four cases, uh, four states where there were COVID cases growing. I've had to flip the way that I tabulate now. Yep. There, are 11, there are 11 states now with cases falling. In other right. words, the rest of the country has already got COVID cases rising. So I've been watching this pretty closely for the last month. This has kind of been an accident waiting to happen if there's a new variant that's going to come on top of this. So we've, we've already got the bulk of the country. And trust me when I say my, my 75-year-old mother, her birthday's Sunday, God love her. Um, her. She and her friends, they pay attention to these data. Yep. And because we know that the savings, in fact, this was, this was a good terminal story, because we know that the savings are concentrated in the hands of the wealthiest and the oldest, that really has implications for U.S. consumption, which is 71% of the economy, because they pay attention to where COVID cases are rising and where they're not rising. They pay attention to these COVID headlines because they're the ones who are going to tend to stay home as we head into this critical holiday season. And so, Danielle, given that you have been following this closely, and like you say, I mean, this was an accident waiting to happen if you look at U.S. cases. I'm still curious. I mean, if you do look at the reaction in the stock market right now, I'm looking at the S&P 500 down almost 2%, biggest drop since September. Is this justified or at what point does this become maybe an overreaction? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I've been watching the move index very closely, and that's what I, I follow much more closely than um, than the VIX index. I follow treasury volatility much more closely. And, you know, we've been seeing it inch up very very rapidly mm. to the highest levels uh, since we had the pandemic breakout. So the bond market has been screaming that there's risk in the system for weeks now. Yep. And we've seen the, the yield between the two-year and the 10-year Treasury slam down to 100 basis points despite the increase in the short and maturity Treasuries because the markets are concerned that the Fed, my former employer, is going to be tightening at, a, at an increasingly fast pace going into 2022, because even the most dovish, as in Mary Daly, uh, out of San Francisco, have advocated for a quicker tightening to combat the inflation that, I mean, I, I sent out a, a tweet that went viral a few days ago. There, I've got almost a thousand likes. All I did was take a photograph of Ostermeyer bacon in Dallas, Texas. It was nine ninety nine a pound. I mean, there's something wrong. There. I saw that. I saw that. So yeah, it, 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 there, there, there's something wrong with inflation, and it's a regressive tax that hurts the, the lowest income earners the most at a time when there's been no legislation passed and the little cash that is coming to U.S. families, which is the child tax credit, is set to roll off as of the, Dece- the, 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 the December payment. Danielle, the market is certainly reacting to uh, this variant news this morning. And actually on some decent volume, we were just noting earlier relative to obviously being a, a holiday uh, kind of day after on holiday. 
How do you think the Fed looks at data points like, you know, what we're seeing today? Well, this this is a friendly reminder. Actually, it's a very unfriendly reminder to the Fed that they waited too long to tighten and that they're tightening into a slowing economy that was always going to be vulnerable to the next COVID virus. And now that we do have the next COVID mutation on our hands that we're, that we're staring at, again, with 40 states with rising cases, it's, it's very problematic for the Fed to be uh, pressured by politicians. And there are quite a few politicians. Politicians have crawled out of their skin. When was the last time in your career you, you heard quite a few politicians saying, gee, I think monetary policy needs to be tighter. And yet we have this chorus. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure to, to, to shift the narrative especially with 199,000 print on jobless claims. There's yep. a lot of, of, of pressure to shift the, shift the narrative away from maximum inclusive em, employment back to inflation. Yep, absolutely. Definitely a, a tight wire act for, or high wire act for the Fed continues. Danielle D. Martino Booth, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your perspective here, your learned perspective here uh, on kind of a new Kind of a you know, monkey wrench thrown into this market and economic outlook. Uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's CEO and chief strategist at Quinn Intelligence. Also, as she mentioned earlier, a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. So we always appreciate getting Danielle's uh, view of the markets and of what this Federal Reserve may do. Big risk off day. Today's Charlie was just reporting. Let's get a look at what's happening with the small cap stocks. We do that. Every day at this time with Bloomberg Stocks editor Dave Wilson. How's it going, Dave? <laughs> Not well, in <laughs> short. I mean, the Russell 2000 down almost 4.5%. That's uh, more than twice as much as yep. the S&P 500 in today's trading. Energy stocks weighing on the Russell as oil prices tumble. Uh, the index's steepest decline belongs to Cowan Petroleum, whose ticker is CPN or CPE. I'm sorry. Uh, that stock down 19%. Laredo Petroleum, ticker LPI, is down 17.5%. Matador Resources, ticker MTDR, is down 13.5%. Hotel and resort owners are lower as well, part of a broader decline among travel stocks. Yep. Ashford Hospitality Trust, ticker AHT, is down 16%. And uh, the Grand Old Opry's owner, Ryman Hospitality, ticker RHP, is down about 11.5%. Now, two of the Russell's biggest gains belongs to companies that were named to the S&P Small Cap 600 Index late Wednesday. Uh, they'll join that uh, benchmark before uh, next week's open on Thursday. Uh, and one of them is Cars.com, ticker C-A-R-S. Uh, the automotive site is up 18%. Wow. And uh, the other is engineering company NV5 Global, ticker N-V-E-E. And that stock higher by about 13%. All right, Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson, thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, Black Friday, people are shopping. You know, I know I'm going to drive by the Short Hills Mall later today, and it will be packed. Uh, the question is, how are shopping malls doing in general? How is the real estate in the retail space doing? Let's check in with Jim Sullivan. He's a managing director and REIT analyst at BTIG. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you've been covering the, uh, the REITs for a long time here. There was a time when, you know, you – Everybody just thought the retail brick-and-mortar business was literally going out of business. Has that happened? No, absolutely not. Uh, and, in fact, what we've seen uh, this year is the two major mall REITs that we cover, Simon Property Group and Macerich, um, they're both up, uh, have delivered total returns of approximately 100% before today. 
Um, and uh, they've done so because we've seen a strong recovery in retail sales at the stores. Um, and it's been consistent really since uh, since going back to March. So, um, you know, the Delta variant in August had a little bit of a, um, a slight negative impact, but it was short-lived. Um, and sales growth in September was robust. So um, the result is companies reported their third quarter, beat and raised quarter for both Mace, Rich, and Simon. So the stocks have done very well. And so we were talking to Bloomberg Intelligence's Poonam Goyal earlier in the show, who is at the mall today, uh, and it sounds like there's plenty of foot traffic. But I'm curious how you think about the risk of you know these new variants, and in particular this one from South Africa, which we don't yet have a name yet. Maybe that's coming. But <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you factor that in to your analysis? Because it almost feels like a, a black swan event. We don't know which is going to be a really big deal. Well, I think, you know, the comment you just made is obviously the key. Um, how serious this, go- this is going to be, um, how serious the reaction uh, for those who are infected will be and the, um, uh, you know, how long they'll be, um, they'll be impacted by that remains to be seen. But if we make the analogy with what happened with the Delta variant, which obviously increased infections uh, substantially, um, and that impacted the third quarter. When we look at the third quarter retail sales numbers, what we see, and we'll just take as an example apparel and accessories, which is kind of the key category for malls and for sales in the malls. You know, back in July, um, clothing and clothing accessory stores, their sales grew 19 percent versus 2019. Um, in August, that sales growth fl- slid to 8 percent. But in September, it was back up to just over 19%. We saw something similar in the hotel business as well, where we did see some travel numbers decline. And we saw that hotel occupancy rates and room rates slid at the same time in the same way and had a similar recovery. So that was the impact of the Delta variant. Now, whether this variant is going to have a more severe impact or not remains to be seen. We're waiting for the information. Uh, to see what impact it'll have on sales. But uh, if we make the analogy with the Delta variant, it was about a 30-day impact. Jim, there's a you know school of thought out there in the retail that the the U.S. is still overstored. What, what, what do you, the REIT companies that you follow say about that? There, will there be a lot more closures? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I've been following this space for a long time, as you noted. And I think as long as I've followed it, two things have always been true. One is there's too much retail square footage when you look at square feet per capita in the country versus other major markets. However, there's never been enough of the best space. So you had mentioned um, in your prepared comments uh, the Short Hills Mall. The Short Hills Mall cannot be expanded anymore. Um, it um, It is capped out in terms of square footage. And yet in the zip code that it services, there's been a substantial amount of wealth created, obviously, over the last one to two years both in terms of real estate prices and equity market prices. So spending power has increased, and yet the square footage hasn't. So the result should be better productivity for the malls that are located in the best zip codes, and particularly big malls in suburban markets cannot be expanded. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Jim Sullivan, Managing Director and REIT Analyst at BTIG, uh, talking about the mall business. Again, folks are flocking to the malls. It appears here as we do Black Friday. 
yeah, we're going to stick here for another two hours with you. We've got these markets uh, just moving pretty dramatically. I want to bring in Guy Johnson, Bloomberg News from London, joining us for the next couple of hours. Guy, you guys had a ripping day, very tough day in the uh, FTSE off 3.6% today. We were expecting today to be a day that we would spend our day talking about shopping. Yes. It was meant to be Black Friday. It turns out it's Red Friday. <laughs> exactly and right. And we have been, yeah, looking at some really brutal numbers. Um, this as we try and figure out whether or not actually we are done with COVID, not done with COVID. Have we got COVID under control or has COVID got us under control? Certainly today, it feels like it is the latter uh, because this new variant has certainly spooked markets. I think it's just a lack of information, Paul, that we, that we have at the moment that I think is really spooking people. Everybody thought that they got their arms around understanding what Delta uh, and the variant was going to mean, uh, whether or not we would be able to control it with vaccines. Certainly the evidence thus far has been that we were doing a fairly good job of that. Yes, we're seeing a pickup in Europe, uh, but in areas where we have seen higher vaccination levels, it does seem that we have our arms around it. Today, that's been completely thrown out of the window. The real question is, does the healthcare sector, had the healthcare sector seen this one coming? Let's find out. Dr. April Kapu, uh, acute nurse practitioner and um, president of the Association uh, of Nurse Practitioners, joining us now. Dr. Let's just talk about what we've seen today and what we've learned today. Uh, a lot of people in financial markets have been caught by surprise by the emergence of a new variant that is much mutated and as a result has the potential maybe to evade vaccines, to be more transmissible, to be potentially more deadly. As you as a healthcare professional, had you expected like, like something like this would happen? Well, thank you. I, I agree with you. And I think what we know is that until we have uh, more of our population fully vaccinated, we're going to continue to see the uh, emergence of variants. And the variants will continue to get more severe. The transmission rate will get higher. We know this because we know this is what happens uh, with viruses. And so we need to get more of the population vaccinated. That's our number one defense. As far as what we're seeing today, still the patients that are coming into the hospital, um, those with severe disease, those continue to remain the unvaccinated for the most part or those that are very immunocompromised. And it still remains to be the Delta variant. Now, what we are seeing in South Africa today, yes, this has been um, big breaking news for everyone. And we are following it very closely. And we have to see what happens with this variant. But in the meantime, it is continue to urge to answer questions, to get the word out, to make the vaccine available, because it has been shown to be effective in reducing severity of disease, severity of illnesses, and hospitalization and death. And so let's get people vaccinated. That's our number one uh, tool. And then in the meantime, uh, for those that cannot be vaccinated, they're not in, uh, eligible for whatever reason, wear the mask, get tested often. Um, but I, I completely agree we're going to continue to see these variants until we have more of our population vaccinated. So, Doctor, you're uh, a professor at Vanderbilt University, one of the leading uh, healthcare care uh, universities in the United States. It's also in a region of the country down in Nashville, Tennessee, that has had some challenges with vaccination rates, with mask wearing. You're on the front lines here. Do you have any confidence 
that we in the U.S. and more importantly in other parts of the world can get vaccination rates materially higher? Well, what we're seeing, according to the CDC, now we've had about 62% of our population across the U.S. is fully vaccinated. So that means they've had two doses. And then we've had over 37 million that have gotten boosters. And now all adults are eligible for boosters. So we are seeing movement in that direction. But Tennessee, we remain lower. Um, We're more around 50% of our population is fully vaccinated. And so that still means we have lots of work to do. I'm a nurse practitioner. I spend a lot of time out in the community talking to communities about the importance of vaccinating and answering questions. These are great questions that they bring up every day as to why they're not getting vaccinated. And so answering those questions um, is very important. Are you expecting that as we head into into winter that we are going to be seeing higher case counts? I appreciate that we're in November, about to go into December, but I imagine it's still pretty warm where you are. Are we going to see higher case counts? You just give me a number that's in the 50s, 50% of the population vaccinated. Eastern Europe, which is in the mid-60s, has seen an absolute explosion of cases over the last few weeks. And that's what we're seeing in the U.S. We're seeing, seeing an in-case count. We're seeing that as well. Um, however, we are not seeing the dramatic increase in hospitalizations and deaths. So that's, that's the number that's very important to follow. Um, but we are seeing an increase in case counts. And so what is to come after that is very important to follow. Um, We need to make sure testing is available to everyone everywhere so that they can get tested as soon as they experience signs or symptoms. Um, Even if if they are unvaccinated and they're going somewhere, get tested. Wear a mask. We have to do whatever we can to reduce the transmission rate um, so that we can keep our numbers of hospitalizations and deaths down. Now, you mentioned 50% fully vaccinated. That's Tennessee, but in the United States, we're around 62% fully vaccinated. All right, Dr. April Kapu, uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate Dr. April Kapu, acute nurse practitioner and president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, also professor at Vanderbilt University. And again, uh, Guy, it's uh, challenging. It just seems like once you get a handle on one wave delta, here comes another one potentially. Well, yeah, that is uh, what we're dealing with here. And we, the, the problem is, Paul, we just don't know enough about it uh, at the moment to, to form informed uh, t- sort of decision-making. We're, we're cutting flights, but the, but the suggestion of all the people I've been talking to today is that basically this is probably already spread. We should expect it to pick up. Well, I'll admit something to you all. Um, A lot of the smart kids are talking about distributed finance. I don't really know what it means, but fortunately, our next guest does. Cam Harvey, he's a professor of finance at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, my former professor uh, when I was a student at Fuqua. Cam, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you've got a new book out, which is really why this is great to chat with you, entitled DeFi and the Future of Finance. What What is DeFi? So decentralized finance is a way to transact where you kind of avoid a lot of middle people. So, for example, if you want to buy or sell stock, you need to deal with a broker. You need to go uh, to a stock exchange and things like that. 
Whereas uh, in decentralized finance, you're trading with an algorithm. So the algorithm doesn't care if you're a buyer or a seller. You sell uh, or you buy uh, with the algorithm. So it takes a lot of the middle uh, layer out. And decentralized finance does a lot more because it's not just trading of securities. It could be uh, savings and lending. Uh, it could be tokenization. Uh, it could be insurance. There's many different things that are possible in this space. But the key thing is that you take a lot of that middle layer out. And when you do that, it's very interesting because uh, today, if you uh, buy a stock, uh, for example, you can buy it uh, pretty instantly, but the settlement of the stock, it actually takes two days. Whereas in this space, uh, the settlement is immediate. So there's no difference between uh, execution of a trade and the settlement of a trade. How do regulators feel about that, Professor? Um, we spent a lot of time over the last few years uh, making sure that, that a lot of price action uh, on financial markets is centrally cleared. Uh, it allows visibility. It allows safety. Does this allow for that? So on the visibility, everything is transparent uh, in these markets. So uh, the current markets are the markets that are actually uh, opaque. And it's also the case that the same asset could be traded on multiple uh, decentralized exchanges. And, and let me be clear here. Um, popular exchanges like Binance and, and Coinbase, uh, they are not decentralized finance. They're just uh, centralized uh, broker exchanges uh, that people actually deal with. Uh, in decentralized finance, you're just dealing with an algorithm. And look, uh, to me, it's not too hard to imagine in the future we're going to be dealing with algorithms, not just in finance, but in finance, it's kind of low-hanging fruit to actually do this. As for the regulators, um, and there's multiple layers here, uh, this is a new space, and they've got a tough job uh, because obviously cryptocurrency wasn't detailed in the 1933 Securities Act. <laughs> so they need to improvise, but they need to balance. And what I mean by that is nobody wants people taken advantage of by uh, people in the crypto space. And we've seen some of that uh, already. But if the regulations are too harsh and they reduce that risk uh, to zero, then these new ideas will simply move offshore. And, uh, and, and no country wants their best ideas to move offshore. So we'll see in the next few years some sort of regulatory guidance. I, you know, I do think that that's important, given that most of the trading today is just purely speculative trading in the crypto complex. So when I say decentralized finance, that's a small part uh, today of what's actually happening. And uh, indeed, today's market action verifies that most of the trading going on in the crypto uh, space is purely speculative in a risk-off uh, risk day, um, you talk about the market going down 2%. Take a look at what's happening to Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah, Bitcoin down 7.4%. Professor, you know, when I think about decentralized finance and, and when I think about even, you know, just, just crypto, which we have some more experience with, I don't see it being led by J.P. Morgan or Bank of America. Who is going to innovate and develop this new area of finance? Yeah, it's pretty interesting because you ask uh, 
the traditional banks like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America uh, to innovate, they essentially look at this as a cannibalization of their business. So decentralized finance is an existential threat to uh, our current commercial banks. So, so for them, uh, to be a leader in this space is fraught with risk because they're basically, if they jump into this, uh, it means that their role will be a much smaller role uh, in, in the future. So this, just to be clear, um, decentralized finance is where you're dealing with peers. Everybody's a peer. There's no client. There's no customer. There's no banker. Everybody's a peer. And, and that's a totally different model. So we don't rely upon uh, J.P. Morgan or Bank of America in, to innovate in this space. There's like a whole new ecosystem out there uh, yeah. that is it's driven by economists and computer scientists to, to essentially rebuild our financial system, not to renovate, but to rebuild, to reduce those transactions costs. And reducing those transaction costs is a good idea. Uh, that leads to economic growth. Cam, when you see a market like this, um, you know, just I'm just going to talk since the, the pandemic where we had that dramatic sell-off at the beginning of the pandemic, then an extraordinary rally, uh, and then you get days like today. Is, is today an efficient market from your perspective, or, or how do you think about it? So no market is perfectly efficient. So uh, there's information that came uh, to the market today. Um, and it's negative information, and we go into risk off. So it reminds me uh, somewhat of March uh, 2020. If you recollect that that was the month where we realized how serious uh, the COVID-19 actually was, equity markets plunged 35%. Um, and other kind of risk on uh, assets, uh, the same uh, thing. So gold uh, dropped 15%. Um, Bitcoin dropped 55%. And people piled into safe haven, uh, which is U.S. Treasury bonds and cash. And it, it's very similar in, in terms of what uh, is happening today. Um, we're scared that uh, we're going to replicate or could be even worse uh, in terms of COVID-19. Uh, and uh, it's a risk-off day. And again, you, you see that in the market. Uh, it's interesting to me that... The, the so-called safe haven asset, uh, gold, is essentially unchanged uh, today, uh, whereas stocks uh, are substantially down. And as you mentioned, Bitcoin is down nearly 8%. And the other speculative cryptos like Dogecoin uh, down even more, like 13%. Does, does that, in your mind, draw a line between growth stocks, um, the meme stocks, the retail stocks, and crypto? Has crypto become very correlated with equity markets? Yes. So, and I've, I've mentioned this for a very long time. So, given the speculative interest in cryptocurrencies, they actually have beta. So, that means that when the market, the equity market plunges, they tend to do the same thing. And again, March of 2020 is a good example of that. And then what happened afterwards? The stock market um, realized that we're going to have a vaccine eventually. Uh, it turned to a risk-on situation. People piled into, uh, into equity markets, drove them 
to all-time highs. Gold went to its third highest uh, level ever, and, and Bitcoin uh, went through the roof. So, so this is very consistent with the narrative that the crypto complex uh, is very influenced by speculative uh, investors. Theoretically, so theoretically, the cryptocurrencies are decoupled from the economy in general. So Bitcoin has got an algorithmic money supply that caps out at 21 million. It has nothing to do with Fed policy or Fed money supply or any other central bank. Uh, yet, given the speculative interest in the cryptos, uh, they tend to move with the other risk assets, and they tend to move more than the other risk assets, uh, especially in a period of a drawdown like today. All right, Cam, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time here. Cam Harvey, professor of finance at Duke University's uh, Fuqua School of uh, Business. Uh, he has a new book out, uh, DeFi. And the future of finance. So as we all try to get a little bit smarter about decentralized finance, uh, I read that book. Uh, it's a quick way to kind of get up to speed. So I recommend that. And we appreciate some uh, moments from Cam Harvey. We focused on coming into today what was happening with inflation. We've seen, obviously, the supply chain crunches. Uh, we've seen the impact that they've been having. Having There's been labor shortages. We've been watching that carefully. We've also seen a high price of fuel as well. That's starting to certainly abate today with a massive move down uh, in the price of fuel. The question is, is this just a brief blip and, and we bounce back? Or are we going to start to see actually a new normal starting to assert itself as we realize that maybe actually we're going to be dealing with this uh, with this COVID crisis for a lot longer? Supply chains absolutely front and center, particularly on a day like today, Black Friday. So let's get some some insight into what is happening. Paige Van Fossen uh, joins us now, vice president of e-commerce operations uh, for DHL, working on the supply chain side of the business. Paige, welcome to the program. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Um, we've been talking to a number of people already about how the shopping season is going today. There, there does seem to be a sense that we have fully stacked shelves that actually, uh, not only in bricks and mortar, but also uh, in e-commerce, that actually inventories are reasonably good and as a result of which consumers are going to get what they want. You've also been working very hard. Just give us your sense of kind of where we are. How, how well stacked are we with inventories? Do you expect the consumers are going to see any shortages? I would say uh, right now uh, our facilities are looking really uh, stacked with inventory, as you say. I think it was a little bit later coming that w than we would usually have experienced in previous years. So we have been uh, had a glut of labor needs as we're both bringing in inventory that's been expedited as well as you know, trying to get the orders out the door. I was out on the floor this morning in some of our operations. Um, so it's been a good start to the Black Friday. And I would say um, right now, if, if consumers are placing orders, they should be able to get what they are looking for. Paige, you know, as we think about this uh, supply chain, it's, it's, it's a global issue. It's, a, it's probably an area of the economy that most folks didn't even really think about. They just assume that it just happens. The box shows up uh, when they say it is. One of the backdrops seems to be labor. You know, well, that seems to be a real challenge, whether it's having folks on the dock to unload the ships, having truckers to actually get the, the goods inland. How are you thinking about labor and how is it impacting your business? 
Yeah, uh, definitely labor is a challenge across the board. You know, I think as anyone who's driving through their hometown, they can see all of the help wanted signs out in the front of businesses, and it's no different in supply chain. You know, at DHL, um, we are very excited to report that we have really had a very successful season in um, recruiting and obtaining labor. Uh, you know, in past years, um, especially the last few, we have seen a tightening of the labor market, and the competition was really for getting the best talent. Um, today, there just isn't enough talent to go around. There's not enough people for all of the jobs that there are. And yep. so, really, there are going to be winners and losers when it comes to labor. And DHL, um, you know, leveraging our strong brand recognition, along as our with our reputation as a employer of choice, um, have really uh, seen good success this year. Despite that, as you say, there is a there is a kind of ongoing issue with labor. And while you may have been successful recently, you're obviously looking to the future and wondering whether that will continue. Yeah. As a result. Are we going to see increasingly fulfillment centers being automated? How much automation are you seeing now? How much automation do you think we'll see in five years' time? Oh, for sure. I think, um, I guess I would call this, and I've been I've been in e-commerce since, uh, when, since it was mail order. So I've been in the business for a very long time. And I would say from an operations perspective, this is going to be one of the most transformative periods that we have seen. Um, I, specifically because of the labor shortage. You know, over the last few years, we have seen innovation begin to uh, appear, though um, it wasn't quite mature enough and the return on the investment wasn't quite there. And that has really shifted in the last 12 months. I think from a DHL perspective, um, we've been a little bit ahead of the curve. We've been focused on integrating relevant um, innovation into our solutions for quite a while now. Um, and we uh, specifically around driverless forklifts and picking assisted robotics. Um, and we've doubled the number of collaborative robots that we had um, to last year and expect to double that number again next year. So technology is definitely coming. Uh, automation, you're going to see e-commerce operations specifically because they are so labor intensive, really start to implement some of that emerging technology. Paige, DHL is a global company. Give us a sense of where you're seeing maybe some the most challenging uh, area of the globe from a supply chain and maybe some of the, maybe some regions that are doing better. Oh, um, I would say it is across the board. Challenging. I don't know that there is a place where it is particularly easy. Um, I'd say in North America, because we, I think, have had um, not as necessarily as much impact from COVID restrictions, we've probably seen a little bit of easier time than we have in some other parts of the globe. Right. Um, just a final quick question from me. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. When I talk to people in the logistics industry, one of the biggest challenges they're facing right now is is how to deal with returns. At a period when inventory is quite 
tight because of what has been happening with the global supply chain story. Managing your inventory when you get it is absolutely critical. A lot of people buy stuff, they try it on, they figure out what they want, they send some of it back. Yeah. How, how much faster is that process now and how critical is that part of the process in terms of maintaining retailers' margins? Yeah, it is actually uh, a very important part of the process. You know, when merchants are placing their orders, they are factoring in returns as part of the inventory that would be available to sell. And so we have seen increased focus on that. Um, I, the interesting thing is through the COVID years, um, people were ordering much more uh, comfortable clothing. And so we actually saw return rates go down because the sizing which was much more forgiving um we are yeah i know a lot of sweatpants and leggings um we are starting to see that um turn around a little bit as people are you know starting to order i think denim is having a new resurgence um starting to order uh, more typical types of clothing uh and there is definitely a focus on that um as well as returns as you know, capacities continue to increase. Returns is one of those places where you can be a little more innovative, maybe move that off site um, so that you can create more capacity uh, for your uh, picking and shipping orders. Uh, but you still have to be able to then get those returns back into inventory very quickly. All right, Paige, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective on this busy day. Got to be uh, one of the busiest days of the year for folks of the likes of DHL. So Paige Van Fossen, we appreciate the time. She's a vice president of e-commerce operations at DHL Supply. Lots of red on the screen here. And as Charlie was just uh, discussing, is this a fair response to an uh, additional unknown in this marketplace? Is it uh, too much or is it uh, not enough here as this market tries to dissect and discount some new information in the marketplace? Let's check in with a professional who does this for a living, David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at Gladstone Bank. David, thanks so much for joining us. You've got lots of perspective in this market. When you saw the trading today, what did you take away? Well, certainly it was a very panicky response. And I think the key thing is, first of all, you know, people who trade stocks for a living are not epidemiologists. <laughs> so the concern, of course, is this new mutation, WHO is now calling it Omicron, coming out of South Africa. You know, it, it could be terrible. It might not be. But Wall Street professionals are not trained to immediately assess what the risk is. And therefore, the default is uh, perhaps move some chips to the sidelines. It is not helped by the fact that a lot of people are at home in this uh, holiday shortened trading week, and particularly some of the senior executives. And so there's probably a lot of stop losses. They were triggered, and people just want to take a deep breath and enjoy the weekend and figure it out on Monday. Uh, what happens on Monday is now the key question. We have seen volatility spike really quite considerably. That's sort of the reason maybe uh, to manage risk a little bit more carefully. Risk officers will be tapping people on the shoulder, just looking at, at the value at risk uh, and saying, well, if volatility is up here, you need to rethink exactly what your positioning looks like. But the instinct time and time again is to buy the dip. Do you think that instinct will prove correct again? 
Well, certainly all eyes are going to be on the people, the scientists at Pfizer and Moderna and indeed J&J. They're going to be working feverishly this weekend to try and get an early assessment. Is this something that the existing vaccines can handle or will take tweaking? And if so, how long is that going to take? The other thing I think people are going to be watching for, what are the government's responses? So, for example, um, uh, Israel and um, uh, Belgium and I think Hong Kong now have prohibited people coming in from South Africa and neighboring countries. Uh, do we do the same thing on Monday morning and say people from Africa are no longer welcome, no matter what their vaccination status is? So that's going to be another key bit of information. Having said all this, you did see some uh, knee-jerk selling and so forth. And I think people are going to be doing a little bit of bargain hunting. Uh, you know, it was just a few days ago, everyone's worried about how high is going to be high in terms of what the Federal Reserve ultimately hikes rates to and when. Um, how bad will inflation be? Is that all off the table? Uh, if so, our interest rates seem to be very, very low now, below 1.5. And some, uh, for example, financial institutions were sold because the interest rates are too low for them to make money. How long can that last? So, David, it's a lot of folks uh, from the medical community and, and, and elsewhere saying, you know, this might just be kind of the new normal for the foreseeable future that is new variants come along and that's the nature of a virus you just kind of got to learn to live with it if that's in fact the case where do you think investors should be you know kind of intermediate to long term given that level or given that backdrop well, I mean, you know, we've had pandemics from time immemorial. Um, we've had variants and so forth. We just perhaps have gotten finished with the Delta one. So, uh, you know, and markets have moved to new highs uh, this month. So certainly I think that with the vaccines on the market, with the antiviral pills, um, with, um, uh, you know, the, the tools, social distancing, masks and so forth, this country and certainly other countries around the yeah. world have learned how to live with it. And so I think economic activity can continues to expand and get better just because we can't say there will never be another variant okay. or pandemic doesn't mean you stop. So what does that mean in terms of what the Fed does next? The talk over the last few days has been that we will see an accelerated taper. Uh, Goldman Sachs was talking about that yesterday in the notes uh, with Jan Hatzius, uh, talking about the fact that we could see a doubling of the Fed taper to around 30 billion a month. Do you think that's still on? Uh, I don't, um, because the, the Fed is cautious. They lowered the interest rates because of the uncertainty of the pandemic. Now that uncertainty has opened up again. There were there was noise in the recent release federal uh, FMOC minutes about uh, increasing the taper. Um, I think and that might be announced in December. I think that's off the table. If you also look at Fed fund futures and so forth, uh, a possible first rate hike um, in June at one point today was pushed off into 2023. So certainly this is going to cause a pause and a rethinking by the Federal Reserve. Uh, again, they're going to be looking at the uh, listening to what the epidemiologists and the scientists say as well. Right. All right. David Dietz, thank you so much once again for joining us. David Dietz, managing principal and senior portfolio strategist at Gladstone Bank, giving us his thoughts on these markets after a crazy trading day. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.